Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, what will be the lasting effect of the partial shutdown in America? There's the impact of the workers who were supposed to be paid, but they don't have that money. And so there's this concern that that will have this ripple effect throughout the economy. The benefit of automation in China's textile industry. I was immediately taken aback by the hundreds of workers sitting with their heads down in pink caps. What's even stranger is that they're outnumbered by machines. And we discuss the giant Canada state pension plan and how it runs its investments. This fund is quite interesting because it has become such a large investor and it will become a much larger investor. And if it does a good job, it will become a model for much of the world. First, the partial shutdown of the US government over a budget standoff regarding the funding for the border wall with Mexico. It's now the longest in history with still no sign of a breakthrough. But what lasting economic damage will the shutdown cause? To discuss this, I'm joined on the line by Samaya Keynes, The Economist's US economics editor. Hello, Samaya. Hello. So, how is the shutdown affecting the economy? Well, Monday was a snow day in Washington, D.C. It's very, very pretty, and I'm not sure much work would have been done even if there hadn't been a shutdown. That said, this has been going on for a few weeks now. There are about 800,000 workers who are not being paid. Around half of those are actually going into work. They're just not being paid. And so there are really two ways in which this has an impact. First of all, there's all the stuff that the government is supposed to be doing that it's not doing because of this shutdown. And second of all, there's the impact of the workers who were supposed to be paid, but they don't have that money. And so there's this concern that that will have this ripple effect throughout the economy. I think generally the impact of that spending cut will be will be horrible for the people affected. But in terms of putting that in context of the overall US economy, it's not going to be massive. Obviously, as if and when the, the shutdown goes on for longer, then perhaps we'll see those effects increase. If you're digging into your savings to cover your, you know, your outgoings, then maybe that becomes harder the longer the shutdown goes on. There are all sorts of other impacts of this thing, though. One of them is that the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Commerce Department, they've effectively shut down lots of their statistical publications. Uh, and so 
monetary policymakers are not going to get the, the same amount of data that they would normally be getting to inform their monetary policy decisions. So, for example, they're not going to get retail sales data if the shutdown continues. They're not going to get data on business inventories or wholesale inventories or factory orders. They are important indicators of how well the economy is doing. So if this continues, then then uncertainty will obviously go up as well. The government also hands out money, tax refunds, payments to farmers. Is, is that being affected? The government has said that they will pay out tax refunds this month. So there was a concern that maybe, you know, the average American wouldn't be getting the refunds it was due from the IRS. And and the government has said, nope, it will still pay those out. And the other effect that probably a lot of people have noticed is the effect on uh, security agents at airports and longer lines. Obviously, that's a relatively minor economic effect, but perhaps a lot of American citizens will be feeling that one. There the issue is that these employees, I think, have been called into work, but they're not being paid. And lots of them could actually perhaps make more money if they were to call in sick and do some kind of temporary work, perhaps drive an Uber or a Lyft. And so there have been reports coming out that that's what people are doing. So far, while it might have caused some inconvenience for travellers, we haven't seen you know the entire American airplane infrastructure grounding to a halt. If that were to happen, then that would clearly be very, very serious. But we're not there yet. Finally, Samir, is there any sign of this ending? Not from where I sit, but that is a very political question. Obviously, if President Trump were to call a state of national emergency, perhaps he would then accept the government to be reopened because he could have got the border funding a different way. There's polling out showing that people do blame the president for this shutdown more than other actors. So maybe he'll give in. But from where I'm sitting, it looks like both sides are fairly entrenched. Samaya Keynes, our US economics editor, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next on Money Talks, automation and China's textile industry. The garment trade is not where you usually find stories of business success that are also inspiring, especially in China. But one big shirt maker is betting big on automation to adapt to the challenge of rising labour costs and the ongoing trade war with America. The Economist's Schumpert economist, Henry Trix, recently travelled to China to see for himself. There are not many items of clothing that convey seriousness quite like the classic white-collar shirt. It took the exuberance of the Elizabethan rough and it put the starch into Victorian Britain. And there's one store in China that matches this idea of precision and seriousness. It's called Pi. After all, they name their white shirts after mathematicians, be it Euclid and Newton for those with Western collars or Zhu and Liu for those Mao-like Mandarin ones. Eskel owner of Pi and a big shirt maker for Hugo Boss is not just serious about its shirts. It's also concerned with the upward mobility of its roughly 56,000 employees, half of whom work in its factories in China. 
Unusually, it's using mechanization, robots, automation as a way to increase productivity and raise the pay levels for those workers. I recently travelled to China to visit one of their factories and I was immediately taken aback by the hundreds of workers sitting with their heads down in pink caps. What's even stranger is that they're outnumbered by machines. On some lines, robotic arms were swishing, trimming the collar bottoms and pressing plackets. Cameras adapted from military devices that use artificial intelligence to scan for flaws in the fabric, automating one of the most mind-numbing of jobs. Uh, one of the uh, functions of this process is to combine all the different uh, colors into a... Luo Zhao Lai, who is a director at Eskel, took me on a tour of the weaving factory in the Chinese city of Foshan, near Hong Kong. He showed me how automation is being used. Where it is. This is a loading machine that, that's... Yeah, yeah, uh, so it's going to, the, to fetch a beam. It's going to fetch a beam and it, yeah. it, it lifts very heavy. It can lift... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this, the, this is of, a, originally it's a, it was a regular fork. So basically we are reconstructed. So it would have been a forklift truck that was driven yeah. by a driver and now it's just fully automated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's true that some workers have lost jobs due to mechanization. But the use of robots has meant that productivity has improved, which has kept the firm's profits stable despite a tripling of average wages since 2006. It's also allowed Eskel to educate and promote those who work in the factories. Here's Lu Lai again. The overall headcount is actually reducing, mainly from the, let's say, the, the labor-intensive positions. On the other side, we are trying to group people into more technical or you know, quality concerned or uh, machine design. We train them on the product knowledge, it's only here, but for like, basic management skills, we have uh, you know, outside training. This approach means that those who once worked on the factory floor are now the very same people who are helping to design the robots. So far, China's trade war with America has not hit Eskel's products. That's because textiles do not fall under the Trump administration's tariffs. But the company's American customers are nervous. Despite that, it continues to invest in automation and to buy these machines from Chinese companies, as Luo Zhaolai explains. We have uh, three or four long-term partners. And Generally from overseas or No, China. We don't expect this project to, let's say, be successful the very first of all. So you have to be very patient. And they are also looking for us because we have the industrial knowledge. What's more, there is a potential positive for China as a result of the trade war. Chinese firms could see this as an opportunity to become even more efficient rather than wilting in the face of adversity. In the long run, that would make China's economy as a whole more resilient. That was Henry Trix, reporting from China. Finally, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, or CPPIB. Once it only had one office in Toronto, but now it's got branches in Hong Kong, London, Luxembourg, New York and many others. And it's a financial giant. To discuss how it grew so much and whether it's a model to copy or question... 
I'm joined by Tom Easton, the Economist's American finance editor. Hello, Tom. Hello. So tell us how big the fund is and why we're talking about it. Well, the fund with leverage is something like $450 billion. So it's very, very large. It's one of the largest investment entities in the entire world. But actually, that understates its importance because not only is it large, it really has control over that money. It's not indexed. It's not dedicated. It's not devoted. It's wherever the people who run it want it to be. So it's emerged actually quite rapidly from being just another significant or not so significant participant in the financial markets to be, many in New York believe, to be one of the two most significant investment entities in the world. This is just a fantastically important, fantastically large, fantastically decisive investor that seemingly emerged out of the blue. And it looks after the money of Canadians outside Quebec for their state government old age pension. Yeah, it does, right. So how does that make it different from British people who have a pension fund, Americans who have a social security fund? How is it run differently from those? So a lot of these pensions emerged during the 20th century with differing structures but with the same sort of intent, which was to take care or give some benefits to people in old age. The Canadian pension plan came out of the 1960s with quite laudable ideas to give something to older people and really terrible funding structures. And by the 1990s, it was insolvent. Many funds like this have become insolvent. They've been bailed out. They've been infused. Benefits have been cut. Canada went through a very, very interesting process at that time. It put a fairly high mandatory contribution split between employers and participants of 9.9% a year. And that was the first phase, and that brought in a lot of money. And then beginning in 2006, it decided to invest it in all sorts of different ways. It no longer became a constrained investment fund. So it's the combination of a very, very large contribution, unconstrained investment, and kind of strict auditing and transparency standards. They believe that the fund is funded at least 75 years out to take care of the interests of the Canadians. And there's an augmentation that has gone into effect this year. And that augmentation, which will slightly expand benefits at a higher cost, will be funded into perpetuity. And it's, it's relatively sophisticated, right? So we have the Ontario teachers as well, which is similar to Toronto. Canada has a, a more upbeat pension fund. In America, Social Security is invested in treasury bonds, which is basically an IOU from the government. In Britain, there's no pension fund for the government at all. It's all paid out of current taxes. So that's the big difference, really, isn't it, from most other countries' pension Yeah, funds. I mean, America's, I think, right now is projected to run out of money entirely in 2034. So it's quite irresponsible. There are many state and municipal pensions in America that are considered heavily underfunded. Illinois and New Jersey come to mind. This fund was deliberately structured with the intention of being pretty much or entirely fully funded. And is it achieving that so far? Has it got a good investment return? So the way that they look at these things is it depends a lot on demographics, how many people retire, how many people don't retire. The actuarial estimates for this fund are they need to produce a return of 3.9% after inflation per year to meet the goals. And it has by far exceeded the 3.9% since this restructuring that went on in the 1990s. But – There are worries that uh, you've expressed which are related to, first of all, what happens if you have a long bear market like in, say, a Japanese equivalent of this Canada fund would have struggled, right? And secondly, you know, as governments buy bigger and bigger stakes in companies, does that raise an issue for how they exercise their influence? Yeah, so 
this fund is quite interesting because it has become such a large investor and it will become a much larger investor. And if it does a good job, it will become a model for much of the world, I think, who have similar pension issues and want to take care of their elderly people. But in a weird way, having the government as a very, very large and active investor creates all sorts of conflicts. Like, for instance, can it be truly independent? This fund has taken inordinate steps to be independent. It put a board in between the government and the fund itself. It has a investment mandate that's purely for investment, not for social purposes. It's done, it has a lot of transparency. Yet with all that it's done, there are still issues that have to be considered. For instance, can government really be that independent? Won't the holdings inevitably be dragged into any political conflagration that Canada has with some other sort of country? Will the transparency really reflect all the illiquid investments that it has? And how does it actively manage all these investments? It has many, many board positions on companies that it invests in. How does a government really manage all those board positions and give advice to companies of what to do and not to do? It is an odd form of socialism and it's not clear how that will be able to be functional, maybe more so for Canada because of really Canada is quite a diligent country than many other places that might try the same sort of system. Sounds like we're going to hear a lot about it in the years to come. Tom, thank you very much. Very much appreciate this time. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.